I just wanted to learn a trade. That was really my goal. I didn't know about the SEAL teams. I just wanted to learn in a trade, you know, that, that and, and get some money for college. Maybe that was it. So once you were in, was there ever the thought of stretching it out and doing a career? Uh, 9-11 happened, so I wound up doing four more. Um, so the question you're leading into, is, I think, is why didn't I do a career? I, so I do, I do eight years. Uh, my last one in Iraq was, was tough. And so I think originally what my plan was, was let me get out for a little bit, kind of decompress. Let me do four years, get a degree and then pop back in. I think that's kind of what my plan was. The other thing that happened to me was, uh, certain, uh, I, I think the way uh, this, the way, I think one of the things that happened, uh, and sometimes I feel guilty that I got out, because some guys did so many back-to-back deployments, and that stuff's really, really taxing, especially if they're, they're, they're combat deployments, extremely taxing. And the other thing that happens is, uh, I think if you're in any field for a while, like you don't realize how distinctively different it is if uh, from mainstream like society. And I think being in the SEAL teams and, and uh, being downrange, it's like that. Like you don't realize like the adrenaline rush, rushes that you're getting in. My guest this week is Bill Brown. Bill served eight years in the Navy as a Navy SEAL with multiple deployments. His journey to becoming a SEAL is full of hurdles, uh, to say the least. But he's also a story of perseverance and not giving up. Coming out of the military, he went to Rutgers, and today he's a lawyer. And what makes this so amazing is is that he barely graduated high school also bill is the founder and the lead seal for the navy seal foundation's new york city seal swim it's a fundraiser that goes off every year and in 2023 they celebrated their sixth annual event i really do think that uh, there's a lot in this interview that's that's good to listen to so let's get into it Here's episode 123 with Bill Brown. Talk about hometown. Where'd you grow up? Um, I grew up in South Jersey. I grew up in uh, a couple of different river towns that basically parallel the Delaware River from Camden or Philadelphia all the way up to Trenton, uh, predominantly uh, Burlington City. Riverside, Willingboro, and then I grew up in uh, Browns Mills, which is right by Fort Dix, McGuire, uh, when I was a little bit younger. Uh, basically, very blue-collar, working-class uh, towns, for sure. What caused so much movement? Um, like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of, unfortunately, a lot of families uh, divorce, and uh, you know, I played some musical, uh, musical chairs, I guess. Big family as far as brothers and sisters? No, no. Uh, moderately uh, small family. My brother, 
I had a sister who passed away and very young. And then I had a, my dad got remarried and I had a stepbrother. As far as you as a young kid, what kind of took up your time? What did you enjoy doing? Were you a sports kid? Well, I, I definitely, I was definitely athletic. Uh, I was definitely uh, involved in sports. It's a big part of uh, who I was as a kid. Just, I think it followed suit in the military, and I, I try to live a healthy lifestyle now. Um, I was also, I, I, I like to draw a lot. I think there was a, a period in time there in my life where I, I kind of moved to a new neighborhood. I didn't have a lot of friends. And while I was in that transition process, I, I, I picked up drawing. And I still I still draw every once in a while. It's kind of cool to watch my, both of my kids are pretty artistic. My son and my daughter, so it's kind of cool. Do you have anybody in your family before you started drawing that was that you knew was artistic? Um, I, I think my mother was, and because I, uh, we used to color when I was little and she was a very detailed, uh, in her, in her coloring. And one of the things she would do with me and my brother, when we were to stay with her is we, we'd also, we travel a lot. She took us to a lot of different museums and, uh, we also did a lot of coloring. <laughs> What'd your mom and dad do for work? Uh, my mother was stay at home and she later on in life, she winded up becoming a realtor. My father was the first person in my family to go to college. He used a GI bill and he went to Rutgers in South Jersey. He became a CPA NBA. He was an accountant. Which branch was he in? He was in the air force. And one of the, he grew up, he grew up, my, my grandfather and grandmother were strong Catholics and he was the oldest, he was the only boy and the oldest of nine. And so he had eight younger sisters. And so they didn't have a lot of money. And so when he was, uh, he's a tactician. He also taught me uh, one of the things we did together a lot when I was growing up is we would play chess. And he was a tactician in his career path because he, and in a tactician in a way, he, he used the Air Force to help him. One is he enlisted in the Air Force during the Vietnam area, and he did that specifically because he was less likely to see combat. Two, he also did it because the Montgomery GI Bill, which he maximized when he got out. And he set himself up once he got out by working a couple of state jobs at different hospitals, being the accountant, and then with, with the state, he collected a pension. Then he worked at the uh, city of Philadelphia, um, and so being a forensic auditor there. And so now he actually collects two pensions. So he was very, uh, uh, very well the way he, he planned things out for himself. A lot of young men and women don't look at the big picture when they sign up for the military and what, how much they can get as an ancillary benefit. It's almost, sometimes they just look at what am I going to get right now? So that's, that's cool that your dad saw that bigger picture and, and utilized how much he could get back for what he gave. For sure. I, I think that's one of the, there's, there's different ways, different motivations that excel people to action, right? Uh, I think one of my motivations for joining a military, or, or I think like most things, there was a couple different variables that played into it. I think one was uh, my pappy from my mother's side, Gerald Bridges, was a World War II veteran in the Navy. He fought in a Pacific theater. My 
father's father, he was in the army during the Korean War, and he was pretty athletic, and he actually was involved with the army's baseball team, and he was in Europe, so he never deployed to Korea. And then you had my father. So uh, my grandfather's name is Bill Brown. My dad's name is Bill Brown, and I'm Bill Brown. And then you had my uh, my other grandfather, uh, Gerald Bridges, who was a uh, you know in World War II. So I had a, a strong family. Uh, all the family role models directly uh, in my line were were veterans. So that was a huge push. I think the other thing too for me is I saw what it did for my father, how it was kind of a blueprint, how he kind of stepped up into into actually like another social class. And I, I don't think it's as distinct now as it used to be, but to the college educated class. And I think back, you take it back 50 years ago, it was distinct where I think the lines are a little blurred now. So I had that in my peripheral, you know, kind of, things that I was considering. And for me, um, I kind of grew up rough and tumble in certain different ways. I think a lot of guys do. And I think for a lot of us, uh, similar to what my dad did and similar to what a lot of American families did coming back from World War II, where they used a GI Bill, they were able to get houses and they were, you know, it was, it was a much different atmosphere, uh, national culture that they came back to than we have today. But the, a lot of the ways, the successful ways that a lot of American families use the military to upgrade their, their family's life, I knew that was out there. And so uh, that was all, all kind of, you know, things for me. And I think one of the other things is when you grow up uh, kind of a blue-collar family in a working-class neighborhood, at least take it back, you know, when I was growing up, and I think to other generations, it's a little, I think it's a little, we were a little more tougher uh, in the way we grew up. And I think, I know one of the things for me is, <clears throat> is necessarily we weren't, we weren't bad kids, but together we made some bad decisions. And I think one of the things that saved my life 100% was going in the Navy. And I think one of the reasons why is because it took me away from that. And uh, when I, I was always pretty good at uh, athletics, I was always not a bad looking guy. But my priorities were regarding education and just a lot of things were totally backwards. And honestly, I think a lot of it had to do with some of the music. It's kind of funny, we were talking earlier uh, about how music can be a, such a mu mood enhancer, you know? And I think one of the things that happened with the whole like rap culture and the, like a glorized kind of criminality and kind of like a thuggish lifestyle, because it really promotes some of these extreme and anti type of society type of perspectives and it really jams people up in a big way. And I think for me growing up, I think one of my biggest handicaps, and I had a few, I think one, you know, uh, for a period of my life, I had misplaced perspectives. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, especially going through BUDS, a basic underwater demolition SEAL training boot camp, and it definitely the SEAL teams, was uh, extremely harsh for me. Uh, one, because... Uh, as far as, uh, as far being athletic and having the physical skills to succeed, I had it. 
but there's this distinction about being a seal then i think a lot of people don't realize one is uh, to be in any type of real effective endeavor, you have to be able to work well with others, right? That means you can't have a super ego that it, uh, in, until a point where it intrudes on your ability to communicate and coordinate, right? And then um, two is you have to you have to be a little quick on your feet. It's, uh, I think just because the complexity of the different things that SEALs do and just the different environments, like, okay, you're jumping out of an airplane into the middle of the ocean at nighttime. It's just some complexity to different things you have to do in different phases of that. That's just one small thing, you know? And so, uh, if you don't have the ability to coordinate and communicate and work well with others, right. At a, under stress, and then if you don't have the ability to, um, you know, bring something to the table in a way that uh, uh, contributes uh, and, and, and you can't do that in the SEAL teams unless you're a little quick on your feet. And so, uh, like, um, I think most people, I had no idea what I was getting into. And so, I think, yeah, sometimes you, the hardest way to learn how to swim is when you get thrown in. But I think like most things for me too, right, is the hardest lessons that were for me to learn and adapt to because they were so harsh. They're so, those lessons are so sharp, like they never go away, you know? And so I think one of the biggest lessons is from my experience is being quick on your feet and kind of being able to convey that in a way that others it's objectively clear. Did you, do you think you learned some of that in the, the environment that you grew up in? Cause you said rough and tumble. So I'm assuming not the best crowds and groups to be hanging around with. And, yeah. but at the same token kind of taught you to be better and quicker thinking on your feet. Well, there's, it's funny. There's different, Nothing is one dimensional and there's different layers to every cake. Right. And so, uh, and so, like on a street level, well, like I spent some time at detention center and some things like that. Those, uh, type of experiences definitely, uh, bring a sense of like, uh, you realize, uh, when you're getting out leveraged and when you have to act, uh, these like as a, a street spider sense, I think you might call it. And some of those experiences definitely played well. Like when I was going through training or even when I was, you know, kicking doors in Iraq and things like that, <clears throat> because um, like per se in training, there's, it's intense. It's a super intense, right? A hundred percent, but it's not any more intense than, fighting for your manhood or fighting for your food, <clears throat> you know, and there's, you know, there's rules where it's just only a certain point where they're going to push, you know, things happen for sure. Uh, but against a wolf pack, that's not the way it is. And so, um, but I think one of the, th the hardest things for a lot of, uh, individuals that have similar experiences 
is to realize your environment. And I think that's the hard, one of the hardest shifts when you want to talk about transition. And it's a total transition. It's a total transition to how I act here and things I need to do here to how I, like, and that's okay in detention centers when I was a kid. Or to how I act in the military, how I act in the military when I'm, you know, I'm training in, in, in CODIS or when I'm deployed down range to, or how I act in a college atmosphere when I have liberal professors, a bunch of liberal students. And it's like wacko land, you know what? And they have all their biases. Like, well, how do I convey myself to, to how do I convey myself in, in a liberal law firm with a bunch of intellectual liberal attorneys who can't relate to experiences that I've had. And so I, I think, so one of the things that happened to me a little bit when, when I was in detention center, I had a lot of time. And so I, I developed a love for reading. And, uh, I think, uh, and then what age I, are we talking about that you were in detention you know, six, 15 to 17 off and on. And so I, um, that love for reading, I think really, uh, helped me. Because I don't think there's a better exercise like to stimulate your your brain than and your imagination. And I was I, I, I liked history, and I think uh, so. I developed a love for reading, and then once I winded up go you know after the military, winded up going to school, and then I got uh, I, a great gift. I think one of the greatest gifts anyone can have is to have a good teacher, a good professor who makes uh, makes it passionate to learn. So for a very brief period of my, my life, when I got out of the military and all of a sudden uh, I immersed myself the same, the same way I did in SEAL training, I, and the same thing, I, it wasn't like the outfit it is now. It was like, it, I didn't know about it until I was actually in boot camp. It's the first time. And it wasn't like I could do any research on it. I immersed myself in it, and that's how I learned. It's and I, I, guys who've gone through language courses, like the end of their pipeline, they get immersed training overseas, and they become very proficient in, with the immersion. And it's the same thing what happened with me at uh, when I started going to college afterwards because. I wanted to redefine myself and I had all this energy. And one of the things about being at a high tier outfit like that, and the most beautiful thing, it's, and it's funny because when I compare my experiences to like in the detention center, like when I'm what the only white guy and there's a bunch of guys trying to ask me to write letters and the guards like have like a jeopardy, you know, type of thing. And everybody wants me on my team, on their team. It's like the most deteriorating thing there remember that um that old commercial that they had for like ncaa to try to influence uh black americans to go to college like a mind is a terrible thing to waste and i totally agree with that what's the most deteriorating thing there was that was your 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 surroundings and their law of forensics all the things that you're around dumbing you down and misplaced perspectives, it's, it's just such a trap, right? Compared to going to, or compared to being in the SEAL teams or compared to being in like, a, uh, like when I went to law school 
where all your peers are committed, 100% committed and focus-oriented, right? And talented. And so you can't help but be there and kind of expand. Like, to be sincere, even at my law firm, like, uh, uh, there's no doubt there's, uh, you know, I'm outspoken Navy SEAL. I'm not going to be woke. Like, it's things that will never happen. There's no doubt, right? My perspective, because it's minute, is going to be more likely to be seen. There's going to be differences of that, right? And it's almost like recon by fire. But the exchanges that I have on a day-to-day, like the greatest gift that I have is just being there because these are very committed dedicated professionals and so my thing was when I was kind of fairly new at my firm I still love the hunt like I always tell my brothers and the SEAL teams in their transition I say get on the hunt we're always better on the hunt like I love chasing down something and I love just I love being at somebody chasing down something and I'm an intense like uh, my workouts are intense and so, uh, like, when I give uh, advice to different guys, I remember somebody who was pretty good at uh, wrestling. And I told him, I said, hey, you got to travel. I said, if you really want to up your game, you got to travel. Like, this is a small pond. You got you to reach out and travel. And so, my advice would be to, uh, when I look at the things that have up my game, it would be, I, f- I found myself immersed in situations with with it's almost I had no choice you know but yeah coming out of detention facilities at at 17 did you graduate high school on time that's so funny so uh, interesting thing about high school so I I had I have a I have two brothers Uh, one brother a year younger than me and one uh, about six years younger than me so I played musical houses and I had a, 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 I came back to, with my dad and going to Burlington City High School, which is an Abbott school district in New Jersey, which means it's one of the lowest performing school districts in the state. So it gets extra financing from the state. And so my brother was getting, uh, he was getting bullied pretty severely. Um, I came from, an, uh, I was living with my mom at the time in Millville. I was going to school in Millville, and that's another Abbott school district, very poor. And so I come there, but my disposition was a little different than my brother's, you know. And so... uh, Are you talking your youngest brother or the middle one? Middle brother, the one that was getting bullied a little bit. And so I got targeted, and uh, it didn't go go over well uh, for the, the guys who targeted me. Like, they came to my classroom the second day, banging on the window. I come outside. A guy tries to take a shot at me. I slip it. He starts catching my hands in a way that's not good for him. So he tries to tackle me. And I went up DDTing him right through the window head first. And sure as shit, the bell rings and everybody comes out there. The guy's got his head through the window. It's blood everywhere. So then, you know, I got expelled in my second day there. So what happened was... I don't know how it was going to work out, but I was going to wind up going back to Burlington City. 
they definitely did not want me coming back. Now, I was a pretty good wrestler for them. So one of the things is I would get a bust afterwards and I would wrestle. But they didn't want me coming back. And so one of the things that happened, and this is a true story, it's how crazy the world can be. So I got the lady who was with me, who was like the teacher. And she she came and she, this was at this big like conference room big long table. He had people there I never saw before the principal at Burlington city. And he basically asked me, he said, did you take such and such a course? And at first I didn't catch it. And I was like, no, like, you know, algebra two or something. I was like, no. And she's like, and I was like, oh yes. And went down a list. I said the right answer. And they're like, congratulations, congratulations. Here's your diploma. It's sad, but that's true. So that's how they, they found a way to keep me out, to keep me out. But that's how I, so I got, uh, I have a, a diploma from Burlington City High School, but that's how I got it. You mentioned your dad went in the military. As you were growing up, was he pushing the military for you? What was he pushing for you to do? Or did you have a plan for what you thought adult life might be like? I was, uh, I was, no, I was way, I was way off the radar. Reservation, bro. No plan. Uh... I was like the wind was just pushing me. I was try, I was dealing with like most uh, kids from kind of uh, split up families from blue, blue collar families. Like I had a stepdad that wasn't too nice. We all know that story, right? And and things of that. And so I grew up with a cleft palate. Speech classes for many years of my life. Uh, I had a uh, I couldn't see tomorrow. You know I. Uh, it wasn't really till I got in the military that I realized that I wasn't dumb. Because I think one of the things that happened is uh, 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 my dad wasn't pushing anything. I was kind of, my, uh, my dad was focused on his career. And I think uh, there's a point where uh, he kind of had enough of me, right? So, uh, you know, he kind of distanced himself. And so... You know, uh, you know, once I realized, like, uh, I think it, once I, I think the first time I really realized that I'm kind of sharp in some ways was, it was in my second platoon, maybe, maybe before that. But I remember there was this test and it was all about demo and, uh, you know, what's the explosive weight and what charge would you use in this situation or that situation, things like that. And I did pretty good. And I was like, uh, I did, I did significantly better than the rest of my, you know, my brothers. So, um, those type of experience. And I think one of the other cool things about the military is one, it took me away from all that because, uh, when you don't have a support system that's bringing you up, it's, it's bringing you down. Right. And that could be family, that could be peers, that, you know, that's just the environment. And I think it's so hard for people to realize, like, I'm, I'm being held down here. And that's what the, and it's so hard to cut away in the, uh, in the, in the, in the teams. One of the things that happens, right, if you have a, a, function, a malfunction in your shoot, you cut away your old shoot first before you open your new one so your old one don't get tangled up in your new one, right? So we call it cutting away. And I think sometimes in life, if you if guys and gals who are stuck in a system, 
where it's just they're getting held back. Well, basically, you don't got anybody that believes in you or supporting you. And, and that type of situation, an outfit like the United States military is beautiful for you. Because they don't give a fuck about that other shit. There's no emotional attachments. If you do what you're supposed to do and you perform well, you're going to advance. And the other beautiful thing about it is they give you responsibility. Right? They, before, no one believed you. And all of a sudden, you know, now I'm, you know, I'm a joint terminal air controller. I'm a, you know, a, a dive safety officer. You know what I mean? I'm a Hearst cast master. Like all of a sudden, now I got responsibility. I'm checking other people's gear. You know, all of a sudden, I'm giving a guy with a cleft palate, and now I got to give a comp brief every fucking exercise, every op. Uh, so I think the uh, uh, I think the, the military can be a huge step up for guys and gals coming from like working class families, you know, hundred percent. And I think the other thing it actually is a huge advantage in other ways because now all of a sudden I've traveled, I've I've traveled across this planet, I've seen a lot of different things, I've interacted with many every different culture there is. And it, those type of experiences, uh, I, I when you want to talk about diversity, the, the military is extremely diverse. And, and going to different cultures and being immersed in those cultures. Uh, I think that's a huge advantage to all, all of a sudden now I'm back in the classroom and uh, some 18, 19 year old kid who's been spoon fed, not a bad kid, talented kid, right? But, it's going to be a, I think there's a, a different level to it. You mentioned that when you were incarcerated or, or at the detention centers, you got into reading and you made a comment that when you got to the teams was, and you finally realized, Hey, wait a bit, I've got a functioning brain up here. When you did go to class or, or go to school, did you find that you enjoyed it? Or was it just something like, I don't want to be here. I'm not going to apply myself. So, when I was back in high school, back in high school, I was I was what you would call a soup sandwich. Right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, I had total total misplaced priorities. Um, I didn't think uh, over the horizon, like I wasn't betting on myself. You know, uh, uh, I, reading. I highly recommend reading. And then I read the other time I re the first time in my life I really started to gear up is when I got orders to butts. So now I'm going through the A school in the Navy and I'm learning how to be an electrician in Chicago and Great Lakes. And now I'm starting to like I read you know Dick Marcinko like Rogue Warrior and, and different books that he put put out and then like seal seal firefights and things about the guys from Vietnam the UDT guys from World War II, those frogmen, like now I'm starting to read. And I, I was really starting to gear up. You know, I was totally immersed. And I think if you look at a lot of uh, people that are very um, excel in their fields, I think one of the things I see a lot, I observe or notice, is they do little things offline that are actually geared towards gearing up for what they do. Like they're, they're in it. They're not, the light's not off. Like they're doing, you know, and that's what I always do when I was, I took 
that reading experience I had in detention center, right? And I also took that intensity I had because now I remember like uh, doing dip bars because the uh, tables were bolted in, doing dip bars off the tables, doing pull-ups off the cell block stairs. I'd get uh, mob stick. I'd get uh, plastic bags filled up with water. I'd be doing curls because not only was I working out, but I was I was also sending a message out there, like you know. And so uh, I was gearing up. And it was kind of funny because that type of like reading in myself and myself and, 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 and working out intentionally. And we would work out with other guys in the cell block. You'd like, you know, go right down the cell and then doing the same thing. Like when I was in the military, like when I was gearing up to go to buds, you know, like totally like working out with a group of guys a lot, reading about it. And it was also kind of cool because I was learning my, you know, my, you know, how to be electrician in the, in the, in the Navy. And it, it got structure, you know, and I think for a lot of young guys, that's what I was really missing. I was missing structure. I was missing a support system. And I think what I, what I got in the military was I got structure. I got a support system. And I think when you talk about uh, the transition to getting out, I think that's one of the hardest things. And one of the things you miss the most is one, you miss like, um, uh, when guys, you don't realize how beautiful the guys are you work with until you're not with them for a couple of years. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, when you get a group of guys, I imagine what it's like being on a, a really good football team. Like you guys train your ass off to perform as together in a team. And then you're doing that for years. And then all of a sudden it's gone. And I imagine it's gotta be a tough transition for those guys it's probably easier cussing because they're multi-millionaires. <laughs> but for me, like that's one of the things that the tough transition, I was like, okay. And one of the things I did at college was I started a, a, a group called veterans for education. And it was kind of a similar setup. Like we were out there gearing up like to, to do well in college, you know, and to look out for each other. And that involved to me becoming a veterans advocate you know, because the truth is, I uh, I believe, like, I believe in the guardian spirit, right? Like, you look at uh, veterans, police officers, firefighters, nurses, you know, doctors, you know, like, we all give, give back to society, to humanity, right? And I think one of the things that's so funny that, that's become used in my in perspective for political purposes is, is they kind of uh, like in Vietnam, they they framed honorable military service for those returning veterans in a way that made those veterans seem anti-society, societal, and here they were sacrificing their 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 lives for the betterment of our nation and for for the rights and freedoms of South Vietnam. Uh, and what happened to those poor Vietnamese who worked with us after we left is, is, a, is a crying shame, which was duplicated in Afghanistan to all those Afghanistanis who, you know, believed in our values, the values which remain true for our country, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, equality, due process. Like our founding fathers were flawed. Slavery, 100%. 
But those ideas, those ideals are right. And our nation's taking great strides to meet measures to meet those ideas. The Civil War, hundreds of thousands of Americans lost. Civil rights movement, women's suffrage movement, right? Even the, uh, the, the gay and lesbian movements, right? They've all, because I believe in equality, right? Now it's the now it's almost like we've taken a back step to some of the some of the, some of those achievements, but the cancel culture and and, and this woke ideology, and so um, I you know I I believe and and that's kind of my repeated pattern now. I gear up, I get with a crew. And I gear up and we, you know, we move forward on something like the Navy SEAL, New York City Navy SEAL swim. Sends a, I'm the lead SEAL and founder. Sends a positive patriotic message of unity for our entire nation to see, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so that's, that's what, you know, that's what I'm focused on doing. And, uh, and I, I believe we need more veterans, police officers, firefighters to get together and send similar messages. And uh, so I encourage, I think our nation needs more men and women who put it on the line, to, especially to be in these professional fields. And one of the things I don't understand when we talk about the transition process, I don't, and I got a lot of beautiful brothers, man. And the beautiful things they've done overseas for our country and it, and some of them come back and they getting kicked around over here i think that's probably the that's one of the reasons why you have greater results sooner or later in the, in the seal teams we would call it raising the bullshit flag like somebody's got to raise the bullshit flag like look i don't think um uh what's the word they use now bigot I don't think I'm a bigot because I believe in biology. I don't think that makes me a bigot. I can't say, okay, I, I'm 46. I could say I'm 47 or I could say I'm 24. I don't think anyone's going to believe I'm 24, but it doesn't make it true, right? And okay, I don't, if you want to call yourself whatever you prefer, I necessarily don't have an issue with it, but don't force me to do it or don't cancel me if I don't, right? And so, uh, like, uh, the what's happened is the way that I think has happened. And this is, uh, I think it's almost like what happens in the detention center sometimes. Uh, if you don't stand up for yourself, all of a sudden, it's going to get a lot worse, right? And it sucks. You're going to be in a lot of fights, right? But you, it's going to be better getting a lot of fights than being a straight victim. And so one of the things that I think's happened now is a lot, it's almost like kowtowed. I think most Americans don't have any issues with what consenting adults do, could care less. I do think... A lot of Americans have issues with biological men competing in sporting events with biological women. And I don't think that makes us unintellectual, unsympathetic, or, or, or bigots. Um, I do have an issue with cancel culture. 
right? I have an issue with cancel culture. I have an issue with what happened, the great sin, right? The great sin that's happened to our country is the open market of ideas on our nation's academic institutions has been polluted. Cancel culture is 100% real. Professors are shunned. If they, if they, if they go against the, the woke ideology, they're shunned. Their careers are at risk. Students' grades are at risk. And what should it be, a, 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 you know, that was one of the cool things about being in the military is I got to see the world. I got to experience new things. Well, you don't get that experience in a, in a, in a campus in the United States anymore. Taking you back a little bit, you mentioned that you didn't even know about the Navy SEAL program when you went into the, the Navy. Did you consider any of the other branches or how did you settle on the Navy? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. So initially I want to be a Marine, right? And they, uh, I was honest with the Marines. I got in a, a bunch of fist fights and things like that. I spent some time at the detention center and they said no. And so I was riding, uh, and that broke my heart. You want to, uh, maybe 96. And so that, that was, that was very devastating. And so, uh, I'm working these odd jobs. I'm working like, uh, living on my own. I'm working at Chick-fil-A's. To, uh, then I'm working at Shoney's. I'd wash dishes and I get a free meal at Chick-fil-A. I get a free meal at Shoney's at work an eight hour shift. And I was also pumping gas and where I was pumping gas at was in between, uh, in the route to Philly and Camden off this route called route 130. What's later on, I ran from Rutgers Camden to Rutgers New Brunswick straight to raise uh, about 20K for the first scholarship for veterans. I started there. But what happened there was um, I got a bike, a 10-speed, and I'm, I'm, I'm living on my own. I'm riding my 10-speed to work, and it was really cold, right? I pumping gas at night, and I'm riding back, and I got to go by the recruiting station, right? And I was so cold, and this was, it was so cold, man, because the wind, my dick, I thought it was going to have frostbite, and I thought, like, I was really scared, <laughs> like, fucking painful, man. And it was so windy, and uh, uh, all the shitheads that come in there, you know, late at night, sometimes, you know. And anyway, because they kept getting robbed, and so they had me on that shift, you know. And so I was like, after that, that one uh, morning coming back, and like it was so fucking cold, I was like, and I walked by that recruiting station. I was like, man, I just, let me try the Navy. I was like, my, my pappy was a World War II veteran, maybe, you know, maybe that'll work. You know what I mean? And so, uh, and he was in the Navy, so I come in the Navy, and I got, I was honest again. You know, I didn't bullshit, I was honest. And the, uh, the Navy recruiter said, all right, like, uh, and I took an ASVAB and I did pretty good on ASVAB. Don't ask me how. And then he was like, all right, they got me. I had to talk to somebody and I wound up getting a waiver. I had to go to Philly for that, the MEPS. I had to talk to some officer and, uh, I guess they did a, an evaluation on me. I guess the recruiter did one and then the, uh, the, the officer down at MEPS in Philly did another one. And I guess I got the thumbs up. Thank God I did. Yeah. <laughs> So you were in boot camp by what year? Or 
97. 97. Yeah. And when did you first learn about the SEALs? I didn't learn about the SEALs until I was in boot camp. Yeah. It was not like it is now at all. Was it something as soon as you heard about it, you like, I want to try out for that? Because uh, have I not heard you say in a podcast before that you didn't really even know how to swim at the time? I didn't know how to swim. So what happened was when you first get into boot camp, you're not allowed to talk. And so you're at this chow hall and you have like this military like TV stuff on, right? And some of the military stuff is just teaching you about these different programs. Well, it came on and it had these guys doing O course, uh, the obstacle course. They had guys doing some demo. They had, they didn't have any guys doing any shooting. They had guys jumping out of airplanes and they had guys on these, on these fast boats, right? These Mark fives. And, uh, I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. And that was in my background, but I didn't pounce on it quite yet, but it was there. And I was like, and you watch it every day, you know, just, and it's only catch a little bit of it. And then I, uh, they had a couple guys who were in uh, different stages of boot camp, So they were more advanced getting ready to get out and they passed the, uh, the screening test. And so they came by and they talked about it. And then, then the next day, if you wanted to try out, you can go Roger up. And so I was like, all right. And so one of the things I would do with a couple other guys, I think like two other guys, maybe three, is uh, one of the ways I would purge, and this was similar to when I was in detention center, is at nighttime, I'd be in the, uh, in the, in the bathroom slash showers, you know, multi-bathrooms, you know what I mean? And we would we'd work out. Like we get hard, you know, and it was a great kind of way to purge in boot camp because a lot of the stuff they're doing, you're learning some basic skills, you're learning a lot about teamwork. A lot of the stuff is like your inspections when you're looking at somebody for like two hours, just waiting for some inspection or getting stuff. It's teaching you about discipline. Like you got to stay and still and look at a guy across from the, you know, the barracks for like two hours and not fucking move. And they're just teaching a discipline, right? To see who's going to break or when you're doing these uh, marches and some of the stuff is getting complex and it's kind of neat and it's really about teamwork. So the lot of stuff in boot camp is either discipline or teamwork and following direction. It's basically, there's some gut checks like when they put you in the, like the uh, gas chambers or whatever, but not really. But one of the ways I would purge is I'd work out with a couple guys like intentionally and kind of had like our own little crew and we kind of felt like, you know, we're kind of special in a different way and we kind of were. And, uh, and so I was in pretty good shape and I was young, you know, but yeah, so I Roger up to take the test and a, a couple guys Roger up. We all fail. Um, I fail cause of the swim, the swim, like, yeah, you know, I was a fucking rock out there. I mean, I could swim, you know, because I, I wasn't far from the Delaware and I used to swim in the Delaware a little bit. But, I mean, compared to like, you know, being able to pass a test, no. So I, I, but what happened was no one said you couldn't come back. And a kind of cool thing for me was I was off the grid for a little bit. Like I was out of the system of like, so for, you know, because it took a while to process the test. And it took, I had to walk there and then had to walk back. And that gave me a little, you know, a little, 
and an environment like that, you don't get kind of like a breather almost to be in yourself. That's it, man. hundred percent. And no one can yell at you when you're fucking running or doing push-ups or pull-ups, you know, or, you know, or trying to fucking swim. <laughs> so the uh, fucking, um, I kept coming back and I kept failing the swim course. Like I kept failing. And then there was an instructor, an instructor Zen, I'll never forget his name. And he, he, he said, Hey, you're not taking the test today. And I thought, Oh, they're, they, they, they're putting the brakes on it. But no, nah, instead he took me aside. And that whole time he taught me how to do a modified breaststroke. Cause you can only test out what the side stroke or breaststroke and his modified breaststroke was faster than the side stroke. And they both are kind of like jellyfish where they kind of can serve. And that's one of the benefits to the side stroke, which is the predominant surface swim for team guys. But the modified breaststroke is basically like with a dolphin kick at the end. So it's a little more aggressive. You're going to spend more energy, but it was a little faster. And that's how I finally passed. And that's how I, you know, I winded up in that. And that, and I was totally had no idea what I was going to do. Like, like no idea. Was that instructor a former team guy? hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And a couple, it's kind of cool. Um, I, you know, a couple of my instructors from Buds, you know, and even one of them from back then at, at boot camp, you call them dive motivator, dive motivators. At Buds, you call them instructors. But a couple of those guys have become pretty good friends of mine, and definitely we've helped each other outside a little bit on some different endeavors. Um, I would imagine that the dive instructor is what he's called while you're at boot camp. What they call them is so what would happen once I passed this screening test is now I would, I would periodically come back. And when I was in a school, every morning I would go. And what they would do is they wouldn't segregate us just by seals at this point. All the various special programs that the Navy has like EOD, special warfare, combat control. Um, I forget what they're called. The guys who, the para-rescue swimmers that they rescue pilots that, you know, so all the different special programs, we were kind of, and we were still, uh, we were candidates, all the candidates for special programs, they would have us together. They didn't segregate us at this point. And we would basically work out together and just, uh, it was a really, it was a similar type of format to where, um, kind of like Superman, in a way, right? By day, I'm Clark, you know, Kent, and by night, I'm Superman. It's like, by day, I'm in a regular Navy course. You know, early in the morning, like 4.30 in the morning, I'm like swimming and running, doing really uh, intense calisthenics and gearing up, learning about different things about the community. So basically, when you came out of boot camp, as long as you passed your A school, you were guaranteed a shot to go to Bud's. That's right. Well, there was, I had... I had something slightly different than most of the guys going through the pipeline is I don't know if they do it now or not because things, it's all things is a continuation of change. Right. But they had something called the seal selection course for me. And that was like a two week course. And they had guys, instructors from the part of buds that's called PRT physical readiness training. And that's just basically where, you, you wait for a number of guys to class up and then you'll start first phase. But while you're waiting there, they're kind of, you're learning the ropes a little bit. You're getting, uh, at, you know, 
acclimatized a little bit. So they brought these guys there and we went through this two week course where basically, uh, they, they put you through the ropes as far as some of the physical conditioning type of workouts. You learn about drown proofing, not tying. You, you do some like, uh, uh, I would almost want to call like mental perseverance exercises, but it's commonly known as surf torture, basically where they submerge you in cold water for periodic times. And it's just basically, you can't hide from the cold water. I don't care who you are. You can't hide from the cold water and it takes discipline to want to stay in that cold water. And so you, you get, you get a little bit of that. Coming out straight into buds, make it through the first time. Or no, did you no. injury? Uh, so in injury and fail, uh, performance failure. So, uh, <laughs> so I, there's, the right tactic to go through is what they call being the gray man. And it's probably similar to uh, law enforcement courses. And so being a gray man means you're a good performer and there's no real spotlight issues, right? You're not necessarily the best, but you're just not, you're not getting blend. Yes. Right. You're a good spy, which I was maybe a good spy, but <laughs> not a good gray man. So in this case, one of the things that happens is, uh, number one, I got a cleft palate. Number two, I'm still like uh, rock steady in it a little bit. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to take a guy who is that far out in left field. Uh, and then uh, three was, I was aggressive. And I was, I, I, in some ways, I was ultra aggressive because I came from experience of... Uh, uh, I knew that in some ways I was mentally harder than others. And that because of some of my experiences. Now, some of these is total different environments. Did you find that hard to kind of turn that down when they were really in your face? Uh, one of the, so one was I had a two, I had so much respect for these guys. I was like, who ya dumb? So one of the things like the instructor will ask you something and you like, who ya instructor this or that, right? And that was a mistake because uh, they thought I was a straight rock and that was a mistake. And so that's like a hard lesson learned. Like you always got to let people know, like uh, you're a little sharp. That was a mistake. And the uh, other mistake, and then I said, well, I'll, I'll overcompensate because in all these other physical type of tests, like, you know, I'll do very well. And I did do very well. Like I, uh, uh, and so, uh, what happened was I get pegged. So at the first part of first phase, I, I'm, I'm doing fine. And so I get pegged, um, after hell week, I performed very well in hell week. They, your body's broken after hell week. And, uh, so like, uh, cause you got the boats on your head so much, you got like a bald spot after hell week, your hands are so uh, inflated, you can't really squeeze too much. Like, like, you know, and, um, so they gotta, they gotta, your, your bodies have to recoup. So they have a week where you're kind of doing admin classwork. And the finale of that week is something called first phase finals. And first phase finals isn't, uh, it's not the most challenging type of exam to be sincere. 
And what they did is it's an old school type of operation that they used actually on D-Day. And one of the ways they would map out the gradient slope uh, for to, to map out the best possible amphibious landing sites, right, was they did something called a hydro reconnaissance. And it's old school stuff and you'd have like a plexiboard that you melted so it has a curve and it's got basically grid squares, right? And then one of the, you got a dry erase, erase pencil and then you got the old school like a lead weight and then like every th three feet you got a knot. And so what would happen is you'll, guys will all get out there at nighttime, kind of almost like a, a water like fog walk down that like guys do an airport or something you're spread out none of this is top secret by the way all right this is all like mark one motto stuff i'll you'll drop the lead weight you'll feel it and every three knots you'll feel feel and you'll write how many knots you felt in one of the grid squares right you'll try your best to stay in the line you'll move up you'll walk it down and judging by those group measurements then you'll make a hydro reconnaissance chart and basically you determine what's the best avenues of approach. And, and one of the things they'll do later on is like, okay, this is the preferred entry. It's not working. So maybe we have to blow something up to make it work and do some underwater demolition stuff. And so what happened was till this day, because they absolutely, they play reindeer games, you know, and till this day, I don't know, you know, but they, uh, I never forget because the, I don't know how things are now, but there was zero sensitivity going on. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in there and, you know, I'm like one of those guys at the gym, you know, that are big up top, but they got like little pencil legs. Like guys with pencil legs know they need to work on their legs. You know what I mean? Like I knew where most my... of them don't. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the reason why we can't always make jokes. I knew where I was jacked up. Like I knew, like there was no doubt, like I knew where my flow was. And so, uh, instructor comes in there. This is the guy that used to get the hammer award every year, you know? And this was a, one of the less, I needed this hard lesson. And it was a hard one, man. And it was, it was very hard because <clears throat> this is the real reason why they shit can me later on. Like it's like, and they used to use like uh, I know law enforcement does it too, like verbal enhanced like judo, like you know what I mean. And it's like, uh, and I'm going to try to mimic it, you know. And like, it comes up to our class OIC officer in charge, and this is one of the only courses where officers enlisted go through together. And that's the other thing too that had a big opening eye moment for me because when I saw these officers who want, because for me my perspective was so out of whack at the time that anybody who went to college must be rich. And here was some guys going to like Brown University and things like that. And when I saw them quitting, like it definitely changed me, right? But uh, so the guy comes in there, he's like, Go ask, he goes, could you believe we got a fucking new record? A new fucking record. He's like, can you believe someone in your class got a fucking 18? And that's 18% out of 100. And so I'm like in the aisle seat. And one of the things that's similar to like uh, being in like a incarcerated, that things can pop off, you know, fast sometimes. You don't see it, but it happens. Things can kind of get uncomfortably. Real quick. Real quick in that type of learning and training environment, right? 
And so, uh, like, death flying in the air and shit like that. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm like, dear God, please don't beat me. Please, God, please don't beat me. <laughs> so he's fucking walking down the instructor, you know, and he stops right here. And he's, like, hovering over me, you know, like a fucking big fucking bear. And I can feel his fucking breath right in my shit. And then he fucking grabs me like this, jokes me up. He's like, oh, I got a fucking 18. I go home and kill myself. <laughs> right. And fucking, uh, then I got to sit in the back with a fucking trash can over my head. Right. A couple other guys failed too, but not, not to that extent. And one of the things that was different in this training, because I took, you know, in any other military course I've been to is when you got to do the retest, it's never easier. Right. And so, uh, you have the, the added stress of having to retest. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it did, the, you know, I just got through helping, you know what I mean? It, you, failure, you're, you're getting shit can. And so when I went up to, uh, take the, take the test again, I'm in there with the same instructor and at the time. Yeah. Like, uh, uh, one of the things that they, uh, used, I think to, uh, it was, I almost felt like, you know, like I was hit by a whip every time they said it. Like, uh, as they were like, they called me Freak Brown. And they were like, Freak Brown, get up here. So I get up there and he's like, uh, at attention, sitting just like you are behind his desk. He goes, fucking miracles do happen. He just goes, go fucking get wet and sandy. And that was his way of letting me know I fucking passed. And a couple other guys that I took the test with, that retest, they didn't pass. You know, they left. But what happened there is they didn't shit can me there, but I got spotlighted, right? So now they knew I was a high, no bullshit. I was a high performer in, in, in Hell Week. They knew I was a high performer in Hell Week, but now they think I'm a straight rock. And now going into dive phase, which is much more kind of like uh, academic. It's not just putting out winning races and things like that, you know? It's more about like a... Uh, you know, we talk about dive physics, man. For a guy like me trying to learn dive physics <laughs> and dive... For man. anybody trying to learn dive physics. <laughs> I had smoke coming out of my ears, but I tried my same type of format for success. Uh, I winded up... Uh, I winded up passing dive physics. But, like, I geared up with the smartest guy in the fucking class. You know what I mean? But what happened was uh, they, they pinged me on pool comp... And so I think one of the reasons why they pinged me on pool comp is one, they thought I was fucking too much of a rock and they wanted another, another swing at me. And so that I get rolled for pool comp. But one of the things that happened, there's a couple of things that, a couple of lessons here in pool comp I learned. Well, in die phase, first was I went through the HR, FBI's HRT team was coming through there to learn the Dragal R5, which is like a closed circuit, like breathing apparatus. And so they were coming to learn that. And one, at this point, like uh, when I came through die phase, because well, for whatever reason, like, dude, they were coming at me. Because what they thought, they thought I was too, too much of a rock to be a team guy. So they were trying to press the vice, but it was like an epic, epic battle because one is I got through hell week and I, I know I outperformed a lot of guys there. And that's like one of the pinnacles of training. 
and I saw a lot of officers quit, things like that. And I was like, fuck, I'm this close to, because everyone, I even had myself counted out. It's like, holy shit, I got a chance to be a Navy commando. Like, fuck that, I'm gonna die before I quit. And when you talk about being a gray man, I also, I made a mistake. I got a tattoo the day before first phase that says whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger over my heart. And so like one of the instructors, that's not what you want to do, right? So then, of course we got to pull evolution first in the morning and they see it's just literally scabbed. And this guy, I don't, I don't drop names, you know, and this instructor starts ripping off the, ripping off some of the scabs. And he's like, I'm going to fucking make you quit. And for the rest of your fucking life, you're going to look in the mirror and know you're a quitter. And I was fucking still like, uh, I wasn't a bitch, you know what I mean? So I was like, I was like, I'm never going to fucking quit. And I was like, you can cut off my balls and I'm not going to quit. Right. So that fucking, that was like, they're all fucking on me now. Cause they, they're making guys quit there on a regular, like hundreds all the fucking time. And then to them, I'm just another bald headed young fucking banana recruit. Like they didn't know, you know what I mean? Uh, so then their device, the I performed, the, the, the thing they had to respect is, uh, you know, they respect guys that perform, you know, and they respect guys who got grit. They could, that shit's clear as day. Like they saw that. But they didn't think of this guys that they thought I was a punk. They thought I was disrespectful and they thought I was dumb. So now they're trying to crank me up. And so, uh, and dive is another, so I'm doing this thing with the HRT team, and this is another big thing. So I had a bunch of officers I saw quit, right? So I was like, hold on, there's something's different here. Like, and then with the F, like, uh, the FBI guys were all college educated, you know, suave guys, you know? They're not just sending some guys, you didn't have to sit together to fucking butts. And so what happened was they had the, the training combat tank there and it's 50 meters on uh, length. And they got our twin 80 scuba tanks and they got They got an MC system where they can talk underwater to you. And it's kind of cool. They got these big ass windows down there and they can video record it. And they do, and you can see people watching it sometimes in some of the evolutions, like pool comp, I thought I was getting raped underwater and <laughs> you can see the fucking video camera down there. Cause you're holding your breath for a fucking a long time, bro. And uh, what they do, and this is a big, uh, and the FBI uh, asked me, the Newark division asked me to come speak, and I told them this story. And so what they did is they had us separate in our class, and we're down there, and they tell us to take off our tanks, put them by our knees, put our white belt over our tanks so our tanks don't float. And then they're like, you know, when you hear the buzzer, swim to the other side. But they said, while you're swimming to the other side, we're going to take a couple tanks off from each side. And they said, there's no rules. You get air, do whatever you got to do to get air. And we're going to see who, who comes up and who's still down there. And so what happened was they did that air iteration like three times. And they're like, and they told, you know, they said all the FBI guys have left the water, right? I was one of the last guys up. Right now, everybody knew it. My class knew it. The instructors knew it. I knew it. And the FBI guys were one of the first guys fucking out of the water, right? So now I'm like, it's distinctively, objectively clear that when it comes to fighting for air in the water, I'm one of the last guys up. Right? So now it's like, all right, you think I'm a fucking rock? And maybe I fucking am, but I'm a hard fucking rock. <laughs> And so, 
so uh, that kind of, that those type of little victories give you strength. And I remember like when I was getting uh, surf tortured late at night, you know, and you're you're in the water for a long fucking time, you know. And one of my things is I'd be giving them the finger underneath the water so like they couldn't see it, or like when the guys were screaming "Who yeah," I'd be like "Fuck you." Like just little kind of victories to kind of like that don't mean shit, but to you they kind of like help help you get through a little bit. And so like that experience happened. So then I get rolled out pool comp, pool comp, and one of the things at pool comp that I saw that you know I that had an impact on me was like uh, I didn't freak out in pool comp. And uh, one of my one of my buddies who has my roommate, so we're at a board because they failed us for pool cop. And in this board, they can either roll you back or they can shit can you. And so I, they had me talk first, and there was like a couple other of us, but the one big distinction was between me and my roommate. And I was like, um, I was like, I forget exactly what I said, but I was like, you know, this is what happened. Uh, this is why I failed. I haven't, you know, I never panicked and I know I can do this. And my, my, my buddy, I like, he totally fucked himself. He was like, I couldn't get air. I didn't know what to do. So I, I tried to shoot to the surface. And the thing is like, uh, when you're dealing with the boiler's law, right? You, you, you know, when you do, you know, you got compressed air, as you rise to the surface, it's going to expand, right? So you have to off-gas and call the free surfaces set, you know? And, and, you know, so if you panic and you shoot, you can get, like, a tension pneumothorax, and you know, you know, uncomfortable with the bends, different things can happen to you, right? And so he just sent the message that he panicked, and that was the worst thing he could do. And I, that was, like, my first taste to kind of maybe being a lawyer, or learning about like how to verbally advocate for yourself in a stressful situation. And so like that was a learning experience for me too. So I get rolled back. I wind up to the, ne- I had to wait to the next class to go through a pool comp. And now what happens is in that next class I go through, they, one of the things they do, uh, and this is actually good. And they do it in most special force programs. And a lot of people don't probably realize it. But they take different uh, guys from different outfits as like one of your instructors. So like we had some guys from like, uh, we had like a couple like uh, Green Berets. We had not a couple, I think we had one. We had a guy from the Air Force. And the Air Force has a, uh, a, a, a pretty intense program. The guys are like, they're, their JTACs are the best in the world, joint terminal air controllers, right? Uh, and their their pararescue swimmers are pretty good too. And so we had uh, one of those guys. Now, this guy, for whatever reason, in my opinion, kind of had like a Napoleon complex. He was a he was he was smart, and from my uh, interpretation, probably a good operator. But for whatever reason, like he. Uh, I, I think he was slightly intimidated by being around a bunch of seals, so he kind of like uh, tried to be a little bit more than a dick than he should have. That's just my interpretation of way back when. But I got this one instructor, uh, I don't drop their names. Uh, 
I went up to him to do uh, with the Dregular Five. Now we're past the open circuit stuff. We're past dive the, uh, the dive medicine, dive physics test, and all that stuff. And with the Dregular Five, it's a compressed system. So one of the things you do is you have two tests, right? The first test is you put it together, and then you give it to the instructor. You just hold it while you put it down on the table. He does a visual inspection of it, and he puts his John Hancock on. The next test is a dip test. You put your you compress the air, you put it in a dip tank, and basically, if it's a closed circuit, there's not going to be any bubbles, right? So they called it basically like a no bubbles, no troubles test. And basically, what you're making sure is that it's a closed circuit, right? Because one of the things about that whole rig is it's stealth, and so you have to have the you're supposed to have the same instructor sign that. And so one of the things in any type of outfit like this, you never want to be the guy that people are waiting on. You never want to be that guy, right? And so one of the things that happened was I go to this one instructor uh, who was a SEAL and no issues, right? Pop, 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 pop. And then I do the, 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 the dip test, no issues. But that instructor's got a huge line behind him and this other Air Force guy's got nobody. I want to get my shit checked off so I can jock up and be wait and be ready to go on a bus. Nobody waiting on me. You know what I mean? Well, what happens was the Air Force guy checks my stuff and then real loud, he's like, why did you come to me and not the other instructor? And, you know, it says his name. He's like, are you, are you afraid of him? And like, so I bit right into the bait. I was like, no, I'm not afraid of him. I was like, I'm just... You're just, he's busy, like crazy busy, and you're by yourself. But he blows it up. It's just, and it's like, oh, what? Like, you know, complete drama. Look, what? You're not, you know, it was like, it was like I was so set up and couldn't even see it a mile away. He's like, oh, you're not a straight instructor, so and so. And I was like, uh, no. I was, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, and then like, uh, so then it got crazy, man. Before you know it, I'm not, put my gear to, after each dive someone else is putting my gear together or taking it apart putting my gear together I don't go to lunch with the rest of my crew my class I'm doing eight counts in a fucking dip tank and I get I gotta eat an MRE in a dip tank now oddly enough he was taking some uh, some pre-law classes in San Diego and uh I know because he sometimes he literally have like a lifeguard chair, but it, and he'd be studying, and I'm fucking in a dip tank doing either eight counts or fucking eating my MRE, or I'm doing eight counts, and that happened for the rest of the dive phase. Like they seriously like tried to they tried to fucking break me in a hard way, and so like because uh, I remember uh, him asking me questions about like the three different branches of government, like I, you know. And I, my dad married a secretary to a judge. So inadvertently, I knew like, oh, the judicial branch, the legislative branch, the executive branch. But uh, so that was my die phase. And then I get through, and that was a tough die phase, bro. And one of the things that happens, and it's very similar to law school, and I think it's one of the things that happens in our college uh, institutions today, is when your instructors or your professors have so much influence over you, right? That the smart way is to be zero confrontational, right? 
And so, and to, and, you know, and to parrot what you believe they want you to hear. And so, uh, what happens when you're being viced in, uh, in that community is the best tactic for other guys is to let you be viced by yourself. You know what I mean? Or the other thing that happens, and this is sincere, in boot camp, if there's somebody, uh, not boot camp, but in butts, and like during Hell Week, and you're broke roof, there's somebody who's not, who's not performing and is causing you pain, well, the, the best move is to alleviate that by making sure they can't cause you pain anymore, right? And so that's how peer pressure in those type of environments can really uh, multiply. It's a huge learning tool, like because it really reinforces conformity and group performance out of, you know, that's things that like in high school, you, you can be a poor performer and still kind of be popular and this and that. And a combat unit, you cannot. And so like, uh, and so now I'm dealing with multiple levels of that. You know what I mean? But the, the, I think the one thing I had going for me in that type of situation Initially, with my first class I went through Hell Week with, like, they could say what they want. Like, I got this in straight, these guys riding me. They all knew where I was in Hell Week, and they knew where they were. And and so it's like, there was leverage there. But now when you're in a new class, and you still got the wolves on you, they weren't with you underneath the logs and the boats. You know what I mean? And so, uh, they, you know, it's you gotta, you gotta re-earn your merit, and it's, tougher to do when you're swimming against the tide but I found ways to do it but one of the things that happened so what happens in third phase and my first time going through is right at the end of third phase uh, out at the island and a lot of uh, a lot of military training like uh, at least for me and my experience in the SEAL teams uh when we were away in isolated places like islands or mountains or in the desert, that's when like it got real. Like that's when we really learned and honed our craft. And I, I similar to I imagine like professional boxers when they go some way away from everything and totally submerged like that's what it was for us. And so like when you're out at San Clemente Island at the, uh, the last part of third phase land warfare phase, um, the last test that they could shit can you at the time was uh, was weapons practical, and basically that's where you, they put a, a jam in a weapon. You got to clear the jam. You got to strip your gun down, put your gun back together, do a function check, clear and safe it, and you got to do it with three different weapons. And they're asking, and it's different. You know, first they blindfold you, they spin you around, they got crazy music playing at like a, a tempo that's super fast and then they're asking you questions about you know what's the yeah, the maximum effective range you know and things what's the maximum effective velocity what's the weight and uh and then you got to do you stair step up and so the last weapon was m60 and one of the things that happened with me was they had a, a 7.62 cartridge jammed up. No, yep, 7.62 cartridge jammed up. Just, I believe not. I'm not sure the the cartridge type. I believe it's 7.62. Jammed up in the barrel. And I had to use the uh, firing rod to get it out. 
but it ate up so much of my time that I failed on time. And they did it to me. And then what happens is uh, the, the way where they did the test, it was like a plateau and you got the ocean right there. And so they had this tub, you'd have to get in the tub and then you'd have to stand out with your arms out like this and the wind's coming. So now you're, you're shaking really bad. And then you got to come in and do that test and it's the same routine, pop, 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 music. And so they shit canned me for that. And it was a really hard lesson for me. And when they did the review, you know, and they let me know, like, hey, we're, they said, you know, kind of the same, this, they were clear about it. Like, we know you're, we know your fucking mentality is hard and you're aggressive. And they're like, those are attributes we're looking for. But they said, you know, we're, we're shit canning because we don't think you're sharp enough to be a, a team guy. And I think later on in life, that's one of the reasons why, like, I, you know, I sought out being an attorney or things like that because I was like that, that guy in a weight room with little legs. It's like, oh, let me, if they say my legs are little, let me try to make these things big. Right. So, uh, and it was, uh, it was brutal because it, the last two, it was two weeks before graduation. The last week is basically straight admin week. I mean, and then, so me and my buddy are on this on this uh, bench right by the bell where all these guys who quit put their helmets down there. I never quit. And I see my class coming into the grinder and my whole, you know, it was tough, man. But it was a good lesson because even at that stage, I didn't give up. And so when I went back, when they had me going, you know, I had my review board out at the island, San Clemente. And then I came back to Coronado to Bud's and I had like another review. But the truth is, uh, in my opinion, the the uh, the way on the day to day level that the filtering process is the guys is the seals, right? The guys who've done multiple platoons, they know what they're looking for, and I, I don't think it should be changed. And they call the shot, they call it, and I think probably most times, like ninety nine point nine. It's supported, but you go through another kind of board once you get back and basically you have the command there. And so when I was at the command, it was similar to what happened to me in dive phase at my review board. When I failed pool comp, I said, look, I got to the very end. I never quit. I was like, I have no doubt, you know, I said, you know, look at my performance reviews at Hell Week. Like, I have no doubt I can be a SEAL. It's like I, and I asked for, uh, in my page, I think it's like a page 13 or page three. I'm not quite sure, but basically I asked in my orders. So my next command was, uh, so I got put in with a lot of guys who quit, who voluntarily decided that the program wasn't for them. And the Navy, the way they initially reshuffled them then, I don't know how it is now, is they would send them to Lackland, Texas, and they would learn how to be, Navy police officers, the NEC code was 9545. NEC code for a SEAL is 5326. So I went to Lackland to be a 9545 for a year. And my deal was I went to a little island called Diego Garcia in the middle of the Indian Ocean for a year. And what did I do there? I geared up. I took all these, because uh, they have some professors come. I don't, don't ask me why, but they come there, they teach military guys, 
So I took all these basic courses to kind of gear up in that way. And then at the same time, I was like swimming, running, uh, became friends with the British commandos guys there. So I was shooting a lot. And so I was gearing up to go back and I had oars straight back to butts. Like I, so in that moment in my board, like I didn't give up on myself because I, to me, it was like, it was, this was my only shot in life. I didn't want to give up on it. So I was able to uh, persuade the, uh, the board of training officer to give me automatic orders back. And so I did a year at De Garcia, then I came back and I made it straight through. And it's so funny because my first time going through at the, my, and uh, when I got dropped at, for weapons practical, there's two awards they would give out of graduation for the class. One is the Otter Man Award, and that's for the guy who, who's the top performer first time every time. And then the Fire in the Gut Award. It's like the guy who's got the greatest grit and somehow, some way managed to, to still be there, right? So I was up for Fire in the Gut Award that, with that class, and I was up for Honor Man in my next class when I graduated 231. So that's my, uh, and when I went through this, uh, when I went through with class 231, that's where like I'm, I became friends with David Goggins and things like that. And Chris Kyle, Danny Dietz, these guys were, you know, all, you know, friends of mine. But, uh, when I went through with that class, I was, a, I was in a much different disposition because one, I've already been through the whole program. Heck, I've been through because I've been through the program almost, you know, because I got rolled, you know. And so now, I, uh, but to be sincere, like when I was leaving Diego Garcia, like, because the first time I went through, like, they were coming at me, man. I mean, they were coming at me hard. Uh, they weren't coming at me like that when I came through with 231. Uh, How many of this, the instructors repeated in the sense of, did you have the same cadre of instructors and did they treat you a little different the second time through? I absolutely had uh, the majority, the same cadre. Um, and they treated me distinctively different, but I can tell, but I can tell you this uh, because I remember one of these, actually the green beret when I was going through it a second time, cause someone said something about my tattoo and he's like, yeah, he, he, he's, he didn't just get that tattoo. Like that's something that's real. Like, uh, it wasn't like, Oh, this guy's a, you know, they were like, uh, uh-uh. but I can tell you this, like when I was on Diego Garcia and I'm getting ready to fly out, you know, and I know I'm going back to buds. I got so fucking drunk. Right. Uh, and they had one of these military planes where they like, they roll up the stairs. I was so drunk. I crawled up the stairs and I threw up so many times because they flew us to Singapore first. I, I, I threw up so many times, like, and God knows that's, you know, the thing about the Navy, sometimes the Navy can see when a guy, and sometimes they can see when a guy is broken. And they can see why. And like, they gave me like, they're like, all right, man, this guy's getting ready to fucking go back at it. And like, you know, we're not going to fucking court martial him as he's flying back to butts because he's so shithouse drunk that he's literally either crawl up the fucking the, the steps. Uh, I feel sorry for whoever had to clean up after me. I apologize. <laughs> Something a little bit 
pushback that you had a cleft palate. Yeah. For somebody who's thinking about potentially going down the pipeline and wanting to be a SEAL, who's also got a cleft palate, what hindrances did that impose on you? And what should they kind of be mindful of? A uh, couple things. One for me, uh, when I was in grade school, my biggest fear was reading out loud because of that, you know, and kids can kind of be brutal to uh, other kids. Um, one of the things the Navy did for me, especially the SEAL teams, is I was uh, I was pretty quiet most of the time. Uh, not true. Like I can be extremely like vocal and aggressive at times, but most of the time I'm, I'm kind of quiet. And one of the things they did is they made me a calm guy. And the thing about being a calm guy was I couldn't hide. I had to get number one. I had to, the thing about also being a calm guy is you have to know every phase of the operation and what's going on on a kind of a bigger picture because you're relaying information to different assets and, and, and officers all the time. And you're coordinating different elements of your own platoon all the time, like throughout the op, you know, and then I had to get up and do a comp plan in the beginning and let people know and a comp plan, post comp plan afterwards. And so that experience, uh, it gave like later on in life when I became a veterans advocate, uh, I was, you know, I was used to speaking and getting up and, and, and talking about things. And uh, I think it also, it helped me in some ways as far as like being a tactician because uh, maybe it's a little egotistical of myself, but I view myself as a tactician in some ways. And I think that uh, experience of uh, basically having to follow the big picture of what's going on and communicate with different assets it helped me kind of see how different puzzles and can fit. And even nowadays, uh, I think one of my greatest skills I have is like the, the bonds in the, like think of the New York city seal swim. I got the NYPD, NJSP, FDNY, PAPD. I got the coast guard. I got the seal teams. Heck, I even had six gold stars jumping out of helicopters this year in the step, you know, right by the Statue of Liberty. I'm used to coordinating and working with different assets for, for mission. You know, I can, I can bring that together because I have that military experience. So when I think of, and when I look at the other seals, guys that I respect guys that I think were uh, force multipliers, you know, a lot of us had some type of like, typical drawback that you think would be a huge flaw but in some ways it builds a discipline and drive it's actually beneficial so that's my thing like uh you know uh you can never judge a book by its cover when you finally got assigned to a team and i believe you did your entire time with teammate yep did you want an east coast team or <laughs> So, uh, I actually, I originally had orders to a West coast team, right? I had, uh, orders to seal team five. And what happened was, you know, it's so funny when I came back the second time, like before weapons practical, like I had, a, I, I drew like a, a blueprint of every weapon, every piece broken down all the, uh, stats for it. We went to the, on a, on a weekend, we had the whole class, you know, go to the uh, armor and basically gave all that out to my class and we practiced it, you know, 
like, so what, what I did, so what took me out the first time when I taught the other guys, like literally from A to Z on it, like there's no way that shit was taking me out and probably didn't take some other guys out either. One of the other things that happened was, uh, I winded up becoming a pretty good swimmer. And so what happened with swimming was once you get the finesse to it, right? So when I first got the buds, like the first time, I wasn't one of the best swimmers. It took me a while to get that finesse. But once I got the finesse, I still had that like that high pace because I needed that high put out pace to barely pass when I didn't have form and finesse. But now once I developed form and finesse, I still had that like that big engine. And so I, and because I had the big engine and now I had the finesse and form, it made me be a much better swimmer. And then now here I am at Diego Garcia for a year, swimming my ass off all the time, running all the time. Like uh, I became even one of the better swimmers in a class. And so what happened was in buds as, as, uh, as you advance your times, your swim times, your run times, uh, basically they became harder to meet. And so we had a couple guys that were in danger of failing out. And these are guys that have been through with, you know, what's through how we, you know, you, they're your brothers, you're your friends. You don't want, you know, the sacrifice and love they've done to get this far. You don't want them to get shit canned, especially me, because I was been through it, you know, and how devastating it could be. And so one of the things I did is I tied a 550 core to my UDT life vest to another, to another guy's. And what all he had to do is I would guide, right? Because if you're not, if you're not swimming in a straight line, it's going to be even harder. So I would guide and then every once in a while, all he had to do is put out as hard as he can. And then I'd pull him. Like once there was a certain distance, I'd literally pull him. And we'd do that for a while. And that was just, and not only that, I'd coach, I'd coach, you know, try to teach him about diving. I'd parallel his form and watch him and, and talk to him and kind of brief him up on it. So I winded up uh, getting orders to five. He had orders to eight. Now I winded up having a, a kid, who uh, my son, who had some serious kidney issues. His nephrologist was based out of uh, Chops in Philly. And... Um, my wife's family and my family too is from South Jersey, which is, you know, right across the river. So I was, I talked, I talked to the instructors, I talked to him and he, we switched orders. And that was basically, uh, Hey man, I helped you get through and I need you to help me now. And so that's what we did. And so that's how I got, uh, I got order state. How soon after you, well, when you went into the Navy originally, were you thinking long-term at that point where you think potentially a career or was it going to be one enlistment and out? It was going to be one and out. And I just wanted to learn a trade. That was really my goal. I didn't know about the SEAL teams. I just wanted to learn in a trade, you know, that, that and, and get some money for college. Maybe that was it. So once you were in, was there ever the thought of stretching it out and doing a career? Uh, 9-11 happened. So I wound up doing four more. Um, so the question you're leading into is, I think is why didn't I do a career? Yes. All right. So I do, I do eight years. Uh, my last one in Iraq was, was tough. And so I think originally what my plan was, 
was let me get out for a little bit, kind of decompress. Let me do four years, get a degree, and then pop back in. I think that's kind of what my plan was. The other thing that happened to me was uh, certain, uh, I, th I think the way uh, this, the way, I think one of the things that happened, uh, and sometimes I feel guilty that I got out, because some guys did so many back-to-back -back deployments, and that stuff's really, really taxing, especially if they're, they're their combat deployments, extremely taxing. And the other thing that happens is, uh, I think if you're in any field for a while, like you don't realize how distinctively different it is if uh, from mainstream like society. And I think being in the SEAL teams and, and uh, being downrange, it's like that. Like you don't realize like the adrenaline rush rushes that you're getting and, 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 and some of this stuff is, is taxing. And I, I, there's a couple of experiences I had where I was like, uh, what's the right word to do this? I, I absolutely knew what we were doing was what needed to be done hundred percent. Like, uh, I was a first responder to two suicide bombings right away. And that had a big impact on me. And I absolutely knew that was fucking evil. And I wanted to, I wanted to hold some people, those accountable. And I was part of that. But I also realized that like, holy shit, man, this shit's like being on a, a fast race car and it pedals down and you're taking corners fast, but you ain't, you ain't getting up. You ain't letting up. And it was like, uh, I, I was like, uh, I was like, I serve my country with honor. And but I need to take a breather. Like, let me take a breather and let, let me level up in college and then pop back at it. That was, I think that's really what I had going on for me. And the other thing too is I, like you got some friends that die, you know, you have some friends that kind of uh, have a hard time dealing with some things. You see some guys that were in the game, you think maybe a little too long. And you see how, like, uh, they're trying to deal with things a little bit. So I almost call it, like, self-medication, things like that. And you and you love them. And you, yeah, and you, and, but you're like, yeah, I got to cut away just for a little bit. And I think that's what my and original intention was to cut away. But not, because I think the the way... In that type of environment, you can't have one foot in and one foot out. You, you cannot. If that train is moving fast, you're either on or off. You know, and the other thing is you're not, I don't think you're doing yourself any favors and you're not doing your brothers any favors if you're, you're one foot in and one foot out. Like for me, one of the things that happened is like I know uh, computers, they first started cabinet like where you could have cameras on your computers. And I know like a couple times like I'm getting ready to go do an op or something and I'm talking at this time, I got a beautiful wife and I got a, a little a little son that, you know, is a couple years old, you know. And I'm looking at them through this camera on my computer and I'm, I'm doing direct action missions later that night. 
And I'm like, and you emotionally you get all pulled. And I'm like, uh, I can't be, I can't be in two places. And then I was like, oh, then all of a sudden you start distancing yourself from talking to your family because you can't be. Then all of a sudden you're not dis- you're distancing yourself from your family. You haven't been with a woman in months. You've been through all this, you know, you're kicking down doors, you know. You got all this other stuff happening. And so all of a sudden now, like, you're, you know, you're a little angry. I think that's probably one of the things that, you know, happens to these guys that are in these prisons, right? They're, they're not around women. They're a bunch of, a bunch of other guys caged up. You know, it's going to be, there's going to be some, you know, you're going to be a little frustrated. And so you're dealing with, you're dealing with that. And so the other thing too is to be sincere. One of the things that makes us very good is that uh, we're very competitive, right? And so one of the things about being an outfit where you got a lot of competitive guys is if you're not bringing stuff to the table, is you're going to know. And so that's, you know, that helps you make sure that you, you reinforce that. You, and, uh, it's not always easy. And the other thing is, uh, so there's so many different levels of complexity to everything because one of the other beautiful things is you're with guys all the time, you know, and you're doing real aggressive things. And then, like, you get a letter from your, you know, from a, a woman that's got perfume in it. You're like, holy crap. And you really value, like, really value the company of women. You know, because I know, like, you know, I know, like, uh, when I, you know, when I was in Iraq, but when I was in, like, Europe and Asia and stuff, or doing training or this or that, I would purposely, like, find myself just going out of my way to, like, talk to a girl and, like, have a good time and just just because I enjoyed her company so much because I was with these fucking snake eaters, beautiful men, beautiful men, but 24-7. And I think that's a big adjustment too, but I think one of the other things that happens, like when you get out and you're out of the game for a while, you miss that. You're like, holy, these guys were so dedicated, like so committed, like, uh, and now I'm with, you know, these guys that (laughs) care less, but... So you came out specifically with the intention of going straight into college? Yeah, yeah. What year was that? And then 2005. So I did eight years. Yep. And was the plan to go to law school? Or no. did that come afterwards? No. So the plan was not to go to law school. The plan was basically just get a four-year degree. Initially, I wanted to be a police officer, right? The guardian spirit. You know, it's kind of close. I figured I was a SEAL. I was a cop in the Navy for a year. And uh, that was kind of the plan. But uh, when you get, a, every once in a while, it's almost like, I guess, like when a comet comes by a certain planet, it changes its orbit. And I think sometimes when you get around different people, in this case, it was two professors that had a profound impact. So first I had to go to a community college. And there I was taking a, basically getting a criminal justice degree. And I did, I did extremely well, like a 3.99 GPA. But I had a professor named Dr. Hart. He was, he was a prior police officer, you know, became a professor when he retired. And for whatever reason, he took a liking to me and kind of mentored me 
and I took a couple of his classes. I did well, so I took more of his classes, and I developed. A, that's when I really started to develop a love for learning. So then I went to Rutgers after I got my associates, and I'm at the Rutgers, and I'm still kind of in that trajectory, you know, uh, criminal justice degree, you know. But I had, one of their requirements was I had to take a con law class, and this this changed my life. But at the, so I did extremely, extremely well at the community college. I set myself up for success, you know. Like I, I think that was the right phase for me go to community college, do well, and then go to a more kind of prestigious place. So then I go to Rutgers, take this con law class. I have a professor named Alan Tarr, con law. And uh, the decorum in the, the class discussion, I found it more appealing than it was in the typical criminal justice classes. And a lot of the peers there were poli-sci majors and basically they're pre-law and so I took one of his classes and you know you're figuring I'm figuring things out so I take a couple more of his classes and now all of a sudden I'm like I take a couple other professors classes in poli-sci and I change my major and because of where I felt I was in the class and the back and forth and now it's different in a lot of and I think it's similar to in life in some classrooms, you'll have students that are very vocal about everything, and they're not always the sharpest, but they're just, and their positions are not always the most grounded, but they're the most vocal. And then you get some peers that are, uh, are extremely intelligent, and they're not, they don't show their cards. Or then you get some that do, but just not as often. So you kind of, you, get, you learn different things of how different personalities interact but I really enjoyed the classroom discussions and uh, and uh, and that's when I really fell in love with the ideas of our constitution because I do believe in those ideas I 100% believe in due process I 100% believe in equality I believe in life liberty pursuit of happiness and I learned about the constitution the declaration of independence and even uh, the way the Supreme Court has ruled on a lot of these deciding cases based on their interpretations of the Constitution. You know, like, is it strict constitutionalism or is it like an evolving living document, you know? And so uh, there's different trains of thought, you know, and how does it apply? What was the intended purpose? And... Uh, those ideals is because I, I believed in a country, right? But now, like, after reading the, the, the ideas and virtues transcribed, and now I really believe in it. Now, do I think it's, do I think uh, uh, it's, you know, been an evolution process 100%. But, you know, one of my experiences, like, I told you I was the first responder to two suicide bombings. I'm not going to go into the second one, but I was too much but myself and another seal were trying to chase down a suicide bomb after the first one he winded up going into a bazaar before we could and uh sometimes like i think one of the reasons i speak up about things is because of that now there's you know there's part of me that thinks man 
if we were to just fucking hauled ass, we would have got him. But the truth was, like, it was so chaotic. And they would have these big reinforced bunkers there because they would bust in these Iraqis to do the... It was kind of bombed out, like, a little bit, you know? And so they would bust in these Iraqis to do the construction, but they would get mortared sometimes. So where they would kind of have their bus stations and have these big, we would call them Texas barriers, bigger than what the Jersey barriers were, right? And so they'd be in there, right? But after the first suicide bombing, shit was all crazy. Like we could, we didn't know what we were running into, so we were leapfrogging, basically setting security, leapfrog, setting security. But we were going as fast as we can. But uh, so sometimes, like, even now today is when I think about uh, some of the things that are happening in our country. Like, uh, like if I if I disagree with you about teaching kids over sexualizing kids in grade school, or trying to persuade them that there's gender fluidity, and I don't think that's correct. That I'm in danger of, you know, if I if I say that publicly at a school board meeting, I'm in danger of being labeled as a domestic terrorist by our our nation's leading federal law enforcement agency. Like, whoa, that's kind of scary. I understand where you're coming from about the how a, a professor can have such an impact on your life mm. and and change the direction of what field you want to study. When you decided that you wanted to be a lawyer, what? type of lawyer did you want to be well, like were you thinking like prosecutor like i want to put bad guys in jail or you've, you've talked a lot about the importance of the rights that we all have right and were you kind of like motivated to be a civil rights attorney so it's kind of interesting how how did i come into the trajectory of uh pursuing an a, a legal uh profession so absolutely i had a great professor at alan tar and con law, huge impact. Another experience was uh, uh, one of the ways I dealt with the, uh, I kind of felt guilty about getting out, right? Because I knew I had brothers still down reins. So I figured if I'm not in the fight, I'll be the best cheerleader I can, right? And so one of the things that helped me in the transition was being a veterans advocate. And also, I think, uh, remarking myself by going to college. And a bridge of time there where I could kind of be with other veterans because I don't think anybody can look out for us better than ourselves. So being like a veteran student group, kind of looking out for each other, but being on the hunt, like, you know, trying to run for student government. I organized with a couple other veterans, uh, couple congressional debates strictly on veteran issues. Um, uh, like a 65 mile run to raise money for a veteran scholarship. So uh, one of the, I found myself becoming a veterans advocate. And so one of the things that happened was I met a Vietnam veteran named Al Buki, another individual that had a big input on my life. Now he was a, uh, he was a, he was, a, he told me about relationships and he had relationships with a lot of New Jersey politicos. And so one of the things that kind of, you know, give and take is during election time, they'd have like, uh, 
campaign rallies at his VFW or if there was some type of issue he could bring to their attention on a state level and they had a good working relationship with these guys. So I became a veterans advocate at Rutgers and I was banging heads with some of the staff there, right? And he kind of had my back. And one of the things that he said, he said, uh, what happened to you know me when I returned home, never going to happen again. And so one of the other things is like they had, there was like a, the VA hospital in, in Philly had this huge, huge uh, medical negligence issue where these poor veterans who had prostate cancer were getting like these uh, radioactive like seeds that were meant to target the cancer, but sporadically haphazardly implanted, just burning these guys up in the worst ways, right? Huge issue. And he was one of the guys who kind of brought it to attention. He had a relationship with a guy named John Adler. And John Adler for New Jersey at the time was a Harvard lawyer who was the uh, chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So basically any judge in the state of New Jersey had to go get, basically get the nod from John Adler. John Adler winded up running in a congressional district that was typically uh, uh, Republican, but it had a, it's by you know Browns Mills, uh, Fort Dix, Air Force, McGuire, Lakehurst had a large veteran population. I'm a veterans advocate, so one of my congressional debates was with I had John Adler and his opponent. Then, like with my 65 mile run, John Adler came. So all of a sudden, I built these relationships with these local politicos. Their support helped me in some of my stuff with at Rutgers against these professors, because all of a sudden now I'm I'm politically connected in some ways. One of the mistakes I made, not necessarily a mistake, I didn't see the the uh, the the fallout from it initially. Was when you're a veterans advocate. I could, I could negotiate on both sides. It was a good place to be. Now, the truth is, when it came to any type of legislation that required funding, I found a couple things. I found, one, a proposal would be made, a press conference, and sometimes I felt maybe a little used, we'd be in a press conference. And it, it, was, uh, it was basically, you know... Uh, all a show because in the end, everybody knew the result, but me. And I kind of figured that out a little bit. But one of the things that happened is uh, like John Adler had me on some press conferences about different veterans issues. And I've, you know, I felt like, you know, I'm, I'm doing good and it's some good legislation was passed, you know, and I was doing good for my brothers, you know, the mistake I might, I made, to a point was they, the Democrats, and I was from a working class blue collar family. And at the time, the Democratic Party was not what it is now. Totally distinct. Uh, so the Democratic Party asked me to run for assembly, which is state, you know, state legislative office in New Jersey. So my, my reasoning was it, I kind of knew the writing on the wall like I'm kind of being used. It's a typically Republican district. If they thought they could win, they probably wouldn't have me run. I appealed to 
the heavy veteran population. But the pro for me was for a short period of time, I get to talk about issues that I cared about per se veterans issues, right? Like I'm a real no bullshit veterans advocate. And a lot of that was built on the fact that a lot of my brothers are still in the game and I'm back here, you know? And I ran into some really uh, far left liberal professors that, you know, when they had the, the pulpit, they felt the need to single me out and kind of put me in my place because of my service. And I didn't like it. And so uh, uh, me being kind of engaged, I felt like I was, uh, it was my way of kind of like uh, expanding. Uh, you know, uh, like the yin and yang type of thing. And it's the whole thing about like, uh, Bruce Lee's talking about like being with water, you know, can contract when they expand, expand when they contract. And I was, and that, that was another lesson I learned at Bud's because like the first time I went through, I had a job where I'm fixing all these uh, inflatable boats because doing rock ports and things like that, they get all banged up. So I'm spending all night and passing up these boats, not, not getting a lot of sleep. The boat, all the guys in those boats, whatever, they're busting their ass all day. They're not really that thankful. It's a fucking kick-ass job and cost me a lot of sleep, which in Bud's is a very, like, the most highly valuable, you know, thing there is. Let's sleep. Compared to the second time I went through, I had a job where I took care of the, the uh, instructor's diesel trucks. I just had to make up their gas. All the, you know, all their fluids are good vacuum real fast, put a cappuccino, a couple cappuccinos in there, a little bribe, and now they love me, you know? And so I saw the different the distinction of having a job that nobody sees and having a job that the people that matter see, right? And so that was kind of a lesson. So I kind of... Uh, the crazy thing, though, is the job that nobody sees is so much far more important than the one that everybody sees, especially in the story that you... You're talking about keeping boats going, yep. but nobody knew you were doing it. Yep, you get you get a couple guys out there every morning. They're up fucking earlier than everybody else, or they're staying late. But normally it's in the morning because you're fucking spent before you sleep, and they're passing up these boats that everybody needs, right? And the thing is, there's just no. Uh, you're so right, and so many things uh, are like that. But one of the things that is true. And I think for me, in any in any element, in any type of group activity, everybody always knows who's putting in the work. You, that's a currency you cannot hide. And that's one of the things like, uh, that's what real leadership is. If you're in there, and it's like a, a leader, number one, men will know if you love them, Right? You don't need to tell them they fucking know. And two, if you're in there putting in the work, like for me, for the New York City Seal Swim, I do like four dial-in swims every year and I talk with the state troopers in length to make sure that swim's dialed in. Like I do, I've, I do all the test swims to make sure guys that are swimming with us, the non-seals are good to go. Like I'm in that thing, man. You know what I mean? Like I'm in it. I think any type of leadership and group activity, one of the, the keys to success and victory is being in it. 
And so for me, like the, the transformation, the transition, and we were talking about earlier, like total immersion. Uh, sometimes the, the sometimes I think the right move is absolutely try to get as much intel as you can, right? But you'll see sometimes that guys, especially if there's a risk involved, they're taking too long. Like you got to get in sometimes, and there's nothing better than just getting in it. Yeah. So the, let's make that transition because, as we know now, you're you're a lawyer. Yeah. What did you end up practicing oh. as far as law once you became a lawyer? Hey, thank you for taking me back. So how I get involved in politics, right, is I'm a veterans advocate. They get me to run for state legislative office. So I'm doing, what am I trying to do? I don't know shit about politics, brother, right? I'm totally immersed. So I go, okay, let me go to all these township council meetings in, in my legislative district and see what the issues are, like on a on a kind of like a, a governor's leadership role, because it's totally different than me, right? At the time, I'm still a student. I I didn't know this, but they're all you know they all think I'm a jackass. They know they know they see the writing on the wall a million miles away. I didn't know it. I go to these I go to all these township council meetings, and what do I see? I see all the big contracts being negotiated by attorneys, township solicitor. I see a checkerboard, like a chessboard in, in South Jersey of law firms and engineering firms. I could tell if the, the contracts, if it was a, a Republican town, I knew what engineering firms, what law firms are involved, and if it was a Democratic town, vice versa. All the individuals, not all, but a lot of the, the, the ones make the shot callers on both parties were attorneys. So all of a sudden, uh, what am I seeing? I'm seeing this, this, and I'm not even talking on the, like uh, the practicing side of law, or or and, and 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 trust me, that's 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 a web, and I'm not talking about you know the judicial side, and that's a web. I'm talking on a straight business side, and that's a web. That's a huge legal web. Now, when I was taking these kind of law classes and I start looking about like who's in Congress, heavily represented by attorneys. Think of all the state governors that we've had that have been attorneys, right? Christy Whitman, Christy, uh, who's the guy from South Jersey, Florio, he was a Navy veteran, right? You think about uh, Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, uh, Biden, all attorneys. Obama. And so all of a sudden I'm seeing the, the real weight on our society that attorneys really have on so many different levels. And it almost reminds me of this uh, experience that I had, right? When jujitsu first started coming out, I'm in the SEAL teams and I, I wrestled. I was, I was a, if I didn't get in so much trouble, you know, who knows? I was a, well, I remember the first time jujitsu was like rolling around in the team and all of a sudden like, you know, guys got me an arm bar and I didn't see it coming. I was like, holy shit, there's something to that. And I think that's what happened with me. I was like, there's, there's something going on here. And then I started thinking about, holy shit, I don't know. And I started looking around with the attorneys. I don't know any judges here that are attorney, are veterans. I don't know any veterans that are in any partners at any of these big law firms. Uh, that are veterans. 
like this huge segment of our society that has a lot of pull on what's going down and it's in the, their attorneys and, and veterans are extremely underrepresented. So my message to veterans out there is like, holy shit, man, get in it. Like we need more veterans in there. And so uh, I, that was my initial reason to really go after it. Initially, I, uh, I, I wanted to be in the, uh, like, uh, a prosecutor. But what happened to me was I had an experience that kind of changed my trajectory. So I was advocating for Rutgers Camden, which was going to be taken over by a smaller known school called Rowan University in South Jersey. And it was all, it had a lot to do with politics and uh, a medical school being attached to a research university. I'm from South Jersey and my dad went to Rutgers. He was the first person in my family to go to South Jersey at Rutgers. He got a degree there. All of a sudden, this is happening Why I'm at Rutgers. I, SEALs, and one of the things we were very influential in Vietnam in changing things and having a real effect on the battlefield is we would negate the influence of decision makers. And the bread and butter was snatch and grabs. I've done snatch and grabs in Iraq. In Vietnam, that basically you're taking decision makers off the battlefield, right? So as one of the things I've been successful in all my advocacy is I target leaders, decision makers. Now, I'm not, I'm not doing things we did overseas, <laughs> though I would like to <laughs> sometimes. Where'd Joe go? Don't know. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but one of the things I would do is like, uh, first take when I, how I got John Adler, he came to Al Buki's VFW 3020, right? I loved that. Al, Al died a couple years back, but he had a big impact. on I wanted to have, I talked to Al because it's his house. I said, Hey, I want to try to get a congressional debate just on Iraq, Afghanistan issues. We got a little bit of a relationship with this guy, John Adler. He kind of needs us because he's trying to get pulled from veteran community. I said, let me get a couple veterans here. When he's doing his spill at the Q&A, we're going to kind of ambush him. But I kind of told him so he knew because I knew he was going to tell him. So I get a couple veterans dressed up in suit and ties. My one buddy was a Purple Heart sniper in Iraq. He put on his Purple Heart. We get up and we talk to him. We got an audience in our favor. He's he's more inclined to say yes, which he does. And so that's like a small, you know, smaller thing. So I had similar type of experiences with that. And so I, uh, Chris Chris Christie had a town hall, and uh, you know he's pushing to have my school taken over. Chris Christie's Chris Christie. I scouted him out before. I saw how kind of he reacted about certain things. I figured if they caught on me, like, there's a chance that it could go viral, and it did. And at the time, everybody thought, you know, he was going to be the next Republican pres presidential candidate. He was extremely powerful and influential in New Jersey. And I think that's the first kind of black guy he got. Uh, there was a lot of reprisals against me, not reprisals, but there was a lot of veterans that were a little pissed off at me because a lot of us are, are conservative. I'm conservative. Uh and they thought, I, you know, like, they thought I was getting played, but they didn't realize the fight really was 
a, a valid fight. And it was like, you can't, Rutgers is, you can't take the value of that degree away from working families in South Jersey. That's what was happening there. And I think over time, my business became more justified in a similar way when you have a witness. And sometimes you're going to let a witness talk because they're their own worst enemy. Like, don't stop them. Like that's what Napoleon says. Don't don't stop your enemy when he's making a mistake, right? In this case, it's like uh, Chris Christie's going to be Chris Christie, and I, you know, I think there's no issues with anybody in the Western community me and me now about my fight with him, but at the time there was, and so um, you know that's uh, you know uh, so what happened after I got into it with Chris Christie. Uh, the Delaware AG's office reached out to me and they were ran by Bo Biden at the time. And Bo Biden was Iraq veteran. And so basically he reached out to me and it was interesting how they reached out to me because there was a, a Miss Delaware who was going through law school. She was gorgeous and we were friends and she knew the powers that be and you know, that just happened. So basically I got invited to an internship at the Delaware AG's office under Bo Biden. And so, uh, number one, I didn't realize how tough Wilmington was. Like Wilmington's, uh, it's, it's got some tough stuff going on. And at the time I was there, there was a, there was a war going on, a, uh, a drug trafficking war between his Guyanese gangs and his Jamaican gangs. And the Jamaicans were more established, uh, but the Guyanese were, were coming in. And the, the Jamaican guys had uh, some levels of sophistication where they had like uh, a couple like Caribbean restaurants. They had some ways to wash their money. The, mistake, the guy who was calling his shots was an older guy. The, the, the issue he had as he had guys who couldn't stay under the radar to save their lives, just drawing all types of attention to themselves. And so they wind, they were winded up uh, shooting up these Guyanese parties to basically kind of make their mark, right? And they got, uh, they got ambushed. They did it a couple times, and then they got, they got caught up. And then they got caught up again at this big soccer tournament. Because uh, Guyanese, Jamaicans, a lot of Caribbeans love playing soccer. And so they got caught up in one ambush, and then they decided they're going to go to the soccer game and cause hell. Well, they knew they were coming, and so they got, got shot off. They, and made big-time news. And so now, like, you know, Bo Biden's making a big press conference. And it, one of the gangs was called the Short Shots, I think. So there are a lot of different things I had to do there. Now, one is I can't, I, you know, Witness my first homicide trials. I had a really uh, astute prosecutor named Epec Medford. She was brilliant. And they had me work on her for a while. But mainly what I did was they would have like these subpoena phones and things like that. And I'd go through it and I'd label it for the prosecutors, electronically tab it. And so when they wanted to bring it up, they could easily access it. Uh, I had one experience where they had uh, some uh, forensic, uh, what do you call the guy who, uh, is it, who does forensic autopsies? A forensic pathologist. Okay, I had a forensic pathologist there. And what he did was, 
he was like over glamorifying things in some weird way. And they were on to him. And one of the ways they were on to him is like he did something like where like he acted like he was victimized. And they saw right through it. And because they saw it, they realized, holy shit, like all these other cases are in jeopardy because of uh, credibility, integrity issues, right? Red flags. So one of the things they did is they had me uh, go through a lot of this stuff that he did years back. And like, it was hard, man. And then the other thing that was kind of hard is when they were subpoenaed, like it went, that was hard. That was really hard. The other thing that was kind of hard was when they were subpoenaed, like some of the uh, the phones, and this was what the, the drug cases. Going through all that stuff uh, is gritty because in some weird way, it's like you get transcribed for a little bit just by reading and going over it. This, this like alternative type of lifestyle. And it's uh, uh, sad. You know, and so it's like, I was like, that's, it's similar to why I didn't want to do family law. So basically, if I'm understanding correctly, you were starting to see a segment of society that basically you didn't want to spend your life swimming in. A hundred percent it. And I learned a couple other things too, because they had, uh, these guys, they couldn't get, uh, at least at the time they couldn't get somebody inside because they were kind of closing it, you know, uh, they were closing it. And to a certain level, they were uh, reminding me of some of the jihadists, you know, I've come across, you know. There was uh, no doubt they had, like, the intensity of uh, of their reality to, to it. Like, that, like, no. But what I did learn was, no matter, it seemed like no matter what, once they got, they are looking at, like, most of the time, five years or more, or even sometimes a little bit, they all folded. And these were like, I think, as hardcore as you can get. And it was, and that was like a, you know, and let me see how, at least, how things kind of worked. How things at a certain point, oppressor, all things fold. So what, what type of law do you practice today? So now I, it's kind of funny. Now I do uh, commercial litigation, some collection stuff. I do some defense work. I'm not a fan of it all. It's only because I get assigned to it. Um, there's a benefit to the commercial business type of litigation. It's not, to me, it's not personal. And a lot of it's kind of, I think as far as the law is, the most least emotionally taxing. You know, it's like, okay, did you take out this loan? Did you receive, you know, did you, your payment history says you didn't make these payments? All right. So let's pivot then into going back to what you've talked about a lot is the, the veteran advocacy. How did those come about? And what are they about? I do a lot of work for the Navy SEAL uh, Foundation, NSF. Uh, predominantly, uh, the SEAL Family Foundation is a great group. The SEAL Future Foundation is a great group, too. Uh, Tunnels and Towers is a great group. Uncommon Grit Foundation is a great group. I do a lot of work for all those, predominantly now the Navy SEAL Foundations. Obviously, you were a former SEAL, so it was very easy to get involved with them. But what what were you looking to do with that group, and what's their ultimate mission? 
So what uh, what was I looking to do with the Navy SEAL Foundation? One is um, I have a, a few friends that the Navy SEAL Foundation really helped them out. Both of them actually, uh, I don't like to drop two names, they were having health issues. Because they were having health issues, they uh, they were off their tempo a little bit. And they needed a, they needed a bridge, financial bridge, other types of programs. Navy SEAL Foundation helped them out. And uh, I think for me, like when uh, somebody that I serve with and, uh, and that I love tells me, hey, man, these guys really helped me and my family out. I think that's, you know, that's, I'm like, okay, I can get behind that. And I think that's the most influential reason for me moving forward with, with uh, the Navy SEAL Foundation, 100%. Um, one of the things I want to do is when I was uh, moving forward from that previous group to the Navy SEAL Foundation, I, I, you know, I had a couple other groups interested in there. My, my two primary groups that I was looking for were Navy SEAL Foundation or Tunnels and Towers. And uh, the reason being is twofold. Uh, one is it's a very heavy logistical lift, right? And I needed an organization that that had the means to do it. And then two was I needed an organization that already had a clout in New York City. Like some of the other groups, they're great groups, and they you know, we had talks, but they couldn't kind of be like the flagship. Just because I, I needed, I, the one thing I've had, like with the New Jersey State Police, Port Authority, PAPD, uh, NYPD, FDNY, all these groups that have helped me in years past is I've shown together repeatedly that we can, you know, we can pull this off. Now I'm moving with a new group. I needed to, they needed to have that piece of comfort right away. Like you don't want to, because an endeavor like this takes months of planning in advance. And I can't have decision makers and other entities having an issue with, with, okay, are they going to come through? And so I I knew with the Navy SEAL Foundation that that wouldn't be an issue. And I think the other thing I really wanted, I thought it was the right fit is, uh, the, the beauty about this event, it takes SEALs, veterans, police officers, and firefighters. Like, that's who we are, you know. And it puts us in a real positive spotlight for, the, for one day. Fox News covers it. You get, you get this great group of people out there, you know, co- coming across the country to do kind of a pretty kick-ass feat. You got... Badass, iconic landmarks like the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island, the World Trade Center. And you got a, a bunch of ripped up guys, some hot chicks, swimming, doing push-ups and pull-ups, running around with American flags through lower Manhattan. I wanted the, I wanted the, Navy, the Navy SEAL community specifically to run point on that, you know? Because, you know, to me... Like, uh, I'm a SEAL, right? And I want to be leading the way. And I want us to be leading the way. And I want us to be leading in that way, that, like, a positive patriotic message of unity. Like, that's what I want. 
through New York City. Like 8 million plus. You think of the tactical advantage of that. Financial, one of the financial capitals of our nation, one of the media capitals of our nation. And so uh, that's why I moved forward with uh, NSF, Navy SEAL Foundation. For those who want to get involved, you don't have to be a veteran or first responder. You can be a civilian and still participate. What are the requirements to be able to participate in the event? I know you said there's some basically qualification swims. Yep. So there's uh, three ways a non-SEAL can get in. Uh, the first way is a SEAL vouches for you. Basically, another SEAL sends me an email, gives me a phone call, and says, hey, I swam with this person, and they're good to go, because I trust the word of any SEAL. Uh, the second way to get in is you, an individual will email me proof of completion of an open water swimming event three miles or greater. And then the third way is I have two swim tests. I have one in June and one in July. And basically you pass one of my swim tests and, you, and, and, I'll, and I'll green light you. Now we do uh, at the Statue of Liberty, we do 100 push-ups, 22 pull-ups to honor our nation's freedoms and civil liberties. At Ellis Island, we do 100 push-ups, 22 pull-ups to honor all those who came to our country for a better life, honor our nation's diversity. And at the World Trade Center, we do 100 push-ups, 22 pull-ups to honor all those who lost their lives on 9-11 and who stepped up for our country. Now, I'm not worried if somebody's got like a shoulder injury and they can't do the push-ups and pull-ups. Find another way. Do sit-ups or squats. But the swims, no bullshit. I got to make sure that they're good to go because the they're Hudson's, no joke. Total distance between the stops for the swim is how far? Uh, so total distance is probably about 3.1. And that's if you swim straight line, you know. Because the Hudson has no current at all. So it's very easy to swim a straight line. Yeah, so uh, the way I try to, uh, the way I dial it up with, and I get a lot of help from the New Jersey State Police is from Liberty State Park to Statue of Liberty is a straight line what it is out. But what I do is I try to dial it in. So just when the tide's starting to come in, the issue with that is as the tide's starting to come in, if you're doing a straight line, it's going to want to push you upstream. So your first leg, though it's the shortest, is normally the toughest. But I, but after that, I do that particularly so. One is you're fresher than. Two is for the rest of the time, the tide's pushing us in our favor. So from Statue of Liberty to Ellis Island, it's downstream pushing us in our favor. From Ellis Island to South Cove Marina, it's basically downstream. It's pushing you in a direction you want. You got to swim across the river but it's at the 45 degree angle you're looking for anyhow. Uh, so I, tr I uh, at the end, if I timed it right, if I dialed in right, that last that last leg towards the end will be like riding a wave into the shore. That's how strong the current will be pushing you in the direction you want to go. Wetsuit, no wetsuit? No, it's in, in the SEAL teams we call it toasty warm. Now there's some guys who wear skins, not most not because, you know, we like to show off, but some guys, I'm not going to say the water's clean. There's plenty of rubber jellyfish and other stuff. Uh, but what I can say is I've swam that more than any person alive, you know, and I have decon stations set up the second you get out of South Cove Marina 
we wash that stuff off right away. And then after we do our flag run at World Trade Center and the last set of honor push-ups and pull-ups, we got shallow trailers. So you got, you know, I, and I use utilize both of them. So you got two stages of cleaning up directly following everything. So no issues, you know, besides my third nipple. <laughs> <laughs> and that event goes off every year when? So I try to uh, organize it as close as I can to the anniversary of extortion 17, which is August 6th. But what happens for permanent reasons, and I always try to have it on a Saturday, and I always try to have it in the morning so I can maximize coverage with Fox and Friends. And it, like Pete Hegseth, Will Kane, they've been great supporters of the event, swam with us, you know. And, and they're a morning show. The other benefit to having it in the morning is there's less traffic out there. It makes it easier for my flotilla support personnel. But sometimes the tides and currents, they're the boss. And, and as I, you know, even now, like I have Navy SEAL Foundation begging me to iron a date out. And, and I, you know, I reached out to Liberty State Park and those guys are a big, big help. And so I got three Saturdays kind of reserved. Because uh, I can't, I can't make that call not right now until I, I know more about their ties and currents. What's the website for anybody who wants to get involved with it? So right now it's not up, but you just go to NavySealFoundation.org. And uh, if you got any questions, just check me out on IG, Freedom Spirit 77 And uh, I can, you know, I'll let you know. Any last pieces of advice for veterans making that transition out and getting back into the real world? Yeah, we're always better together, no matter what. Stick by your brothers and sisters. I appreciate your time. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you watching. But before you go, if you like the video, please hit that subscribe button. Also, any comments are appreciated. Thank you.